All right, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 7. For our time in the Word this morning, we are returning to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Not long ago, we witnessed how Jesus started drawing his greatest message to a close. That'll be back in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where he told of two ways. Just think about the difficulties of travel in the ancient world. We're spoiled with GPS back then, didn't have that. They had little help in navigation, so if you were to leave your small village and travel to a distant city, there's no Google Maps. You're, you're following the main road out of town till you reach the next settlement and going from there, hoping for the best. But what if you came to an unexpected, unmarked fork in the road? You have no map. What if you got off track somewhere? You could get very lost very fast and not even know it for quite some time. Far better just to choose the right path and stay on the right path from the beginning. No one wants to get lost or waste time going down the wrong road. Now, when it comes to travel, the stakes are low. The worst you get when you get lost is you lose some time, you gain some frustration. It's a different story, however, when you pick the wrong path, spiritually speaking. In verses 13 through 14, Jesus made this contrast between these two paths or two ways. Everyone is walking or living on one of two ways. But it's no longer low stakes. The path you're on determines your destiny. And here he's talking eternity. Eternal life and eternal destruction are at the end of these two paths. So you had better walk the right path. Just to read again verses 13 through 14 where he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So there are two ways. And there are two ways that they lead to two gates. Behind these two gates are two kingdoms. Kingdom of God, the kingdom of the devil. No one wants to end up in perdition. Jesus is talking to people and they're all seeking the kingdom of God. But the problem is, Jesus says only a few end up finding it. The gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life. Only a few find it. The way of salvation is narrow, difficult, and exclusive. And so Jesus urges you, take care. You're choosing the right path. Enter through the narrow gate is his command. You better choose correctly. Now, we, of course, we know the narrow gate itself is Christ. He is the way. He is the door to salvation, the only way. You have to follow him unto salvation. Only those who walk in his ways will enter his kingdom. This has been the, the substance of his message so far. Throughout this whole sermon, he's dispensed so much truth. But it, it does little good to merely hear it. You must do it. You must follow him by faith. And you must watch out for those who would lead you astray from him. And that's what Jesus addresses in the, the following passage in his conclusion. His conclusion in the message begins in verse 13. But after in verses 15 through 20, he warns against false prophets who would pull you away from the narrow way. He says in verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I mean, as if the narrow way wasn't hard enough, it's also lined by false teachers, false shepherds who seek to draw people away from Christ. They themselves don't know the way to God, though they claim to. They're both deceived and deceivers. They're tour guides on the broad path leading to destruction. And so do not listen to them. Do not follow them. Rather, be discerning. 
Hence, Jesus says twice, you will know them by their fruits. Though they're disguised as shepherds, you can see their true nature as wolves from their fruit. Both their lips and their lives reveal their true identity. They don't know or follow the Lord. They don't represent God. So don't listen to them. Don't deviate from the way. But as Christ now progresses through the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, he's not done warning us because false prophets, they're not the only threat to people walking the narrow way. Outside deception is a real threat, so be aware. But what about inside deception? And by that we mean self-deception. You. Some people, many we might say, that they don't need a false prophet to lead them astray. They're perfectly capable of getting lost all by themselves. Yet they convince themselves they're still going the right way. They're like this stereotypical dad on a road trip who is very lost. By every indication, he's lost. But he won't hear it. He won't have it. He won't believe it. He won't take directions. He's, he's convinced he knows exactly where he is. He knows where they're going. But he's dead wrong. And such are the self-deceived. Again, if we're just talking about a road trip. It's low stakes. But when we're talking about the way of Christ, we're dealing with salvation. And I don't think there's any greater tragedy than to have someone who is utterly convinced they're on the narrow way and they follow this path their whole life only to wind up at the the day of judgment at the broad gate leading to destruction with Christ himself saying, depart from me. At that point, it's too late to turn around. Their condemnation is sealed, but such is often the consequence of self-deception. And that is the warning Christ gives us in our passage for this morning. The next verses, verses 21 through 23. This might sound harsh and stunning to you, and it is. If this teaching came from anyone but the Lord, we might find reason to criticize them. But this is all coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. So what are you going to say about that? We have here some of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. But all you can do, and, and me, all we all can do, I pray, is just take them to heart. Heed this sober warning. Let's begin by reading this, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. He says, right after that, right after warning against false prophets, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a a shocking passage. We expect that narrow gate to exclude non-disciples. But here he's telling us that the same narrow gate is going to exclude many so-called disciples. It's not just wolves who disguise themselves as sheep. It's also goats. And Jesus is no stranger to hard, unpopular sayings that are difficult to accept for the natural man. On more than one occasion, his so-called disciples stopped following him because they choked on the meat of his teaching. They couldn't accept it. And many today still can't digest these verses. They would rather remodel, reshape Jesus into a more acceptable form less offensive. But don't turn away from these words in hardness of heart. 
Rather, humble yourself. Allow his words to penetrate your heart. This is a call to self-examination lest we too be deceived. How sure are you that you're on the narrow way? Is there any chance you might arrive on judgment day at, at the broad gate leading to destruction? Let us be certain of our salvation. Jesus is not trying to rob true disciples of true assurance. By no means. You, you can and should have assurance of salvation. But he certainly intends to rob false disciples of their false assurance. And realize that although this may sound harsh, this is actually the most loving thing you could do. If you're a passenger in a car, you're driving along a windy cliff late at night, and the driver has fallen asleep at the wheel, would you seek to wake him up? Yes, you would. And given the gravity of the situation, you're the passenger, would you just like gently tap him on the shoulder or would you shake him violently until he wakes up? Jesus says, it's not a few. He says, many are self-deceived and they're on the wrong path. The cliff is coming. And his teaching ministered to us, to others. This is the pure love of warning. So again, let's heed it. The true believer does not need to fear this teaching or self-examination. God's word gives us all the answers, all the hope, all the assurance we need. But examine self, we must, all of us. To help with that, we're we're simply just going to walk through this passage little by little and just pay careful attention to everything Jesus says in this pivotal text. To help you follow along, though, we use just a basic descriptive outline. And we find that the passage begins with first a declaration. A declaration in verse 21. He begins with this stunning declaration. Matthew 7, 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's obviously talking about eternal salvation, entering the kingdom of heaven. That, that's the end of the line. That's the destination here. He presents this kingdom as still future, which he does consistently throughout the Gospels. As believers, we can be made citizens of this kingdom right now, but entrance into this kingdom is a, an eschatological event, meaning end of the line. This is why he taught us just a little while ago in Matthew 6 to pray, your kingdom come. But looking forward to that day, in the present, Jesus informs us of some people who they're not going to make the cut. But what's so surprising is he's highlighting people who they're, they're calling him Lord. That's the big deal here. How do we make sense of this? We just need to start by asking, what does it really mean to call Jesus Lord? The term Lord in Greek is kurios. It has a basic meaning of master or owner. It's an honor. It was an honorary title for any superior. Like today in the military, you would refer to your superior as sir. That's basically how they use Lord, how you would refer to any sort of superior or master. I just found it interesting coming back from Spain. I didn't know this, but you know how they translate the word Lord in Spanish, at least in Spain. It is, it's simply senor, which was our like equivalent of mister. It shows you, like, it's a very common term, even back then, signifying just respect for a senior or superior. And sometimes Jesus was called Lord in this sense. He was a respected rabbi, a teacher. So many people called him Lord, and they just meant, you're a respected teacher, you're a master. But I'm sure you also know there there was a special usage of the title Lord uh, as a divine title, who is 
the supreme master and the ultimate sovereign over everything, it's God. And so throughout the Bible, Yahweh God is the Lord. And that's why Psalm 136 says of God, he is the Lord of lords. He's the, the Lord, capital L. But you know, what's so amazing and very telling is how the New Testament calls Jesus Lord in the same way God is Lord. It's a divine title. He is Christ the Lord, and it becomes for him a divine title. This is very clear already in Matthew's gospel. This title, Kurios, has been used 11 times in Matthew so far. 10 times it very clearly referred to Yahweh, to God. God is the Lord, right? But this title then gets transferred to Jesus and used now predominantly for Jesus. He too is this Lord. Can't spend a lot of time on this, but one quick example. You see back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, John the Baptist, he came as a voice crying in the wilderness, and he was sent to make ready the way of the Lord. And Matthew shows how John fulfilled that prophecy. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it was fulfilled in regard to Jesus. He was making the, ready the way of Jesus. He, he's the Lord. But the thing is, you go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, you read that original promise. It was made about Yahweh. The promise and vision, Yahweh himself would come down to save and deliver his people. But, but that's who Jesus is. He's God incarnate. Which is why he can now be legitimately regarded as the supreme master, the, the Lord over all. And so now here in Matthew 7, it's not insignificant that these people are calling out to Jesus as Lord, Lord. And by this, they they don't mean Mr. or Sir. It's very clear that these people are recognizing Jesus as Lord, God, King, Master. And take it a step further, they don't just call him Lord. You see how they say Lord, Lord. This is known as a double vocative. They could simply be repeating Lord for emphasis, but I think it's more likely they're repeating this per the Old Testament, evoking the Old Testament usage of Lord, Lord. Now, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was predominant at the time, is known as the Septuagint. And that has this phrase, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios in the Greek, 18 times. And it translates from the Hebrew, Adonai, Yahweh, or Lord, Yahweh. But you remember the Jews did not like to say the name Yahweh, the name of God, so they substituted Lord, and so it became, in the Greek translation, Lord, Lord. But they know this, this was how they referred to Lord God. This was their way of saying Lord God. And so given how familiar this translation was, Christ's audience standing before him, hearing this Lord, Lord, it, it stands to reason that in their mind, this is an, an address of God. But these people are They're talking to Jesus. He is the Lord, Lord. They're confessing him as Lord God. He is the Almighty One, and rightly so. And put together so far, you have a serious confession. This group of people, they're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. These aren't atheists or pagans. This group of people are professing Christ's followers, and and they seem to have his identity right. Theirs is an orthodox confession And theirs is a necessary confession. Don't get the impression that Jesus is saying confessing him as Lord is optional for entering the kingdom. Not at all. I mean, recognizing Jesus for who he is, confessing him as the supreme Lord is essential to salvation. Right? You know Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
In the Old Testament, Joel 2.32 said, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Of course, in that passage, it said, whoever calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. But Paul takes that verse in Romans 9, applies it to Jesus. He is this Lord. He's the Lord of all. He's the Savior. All those who cry out to him in faith as Lord will be saved. But again, that's what makes verse 21 such a stunning declaration Because you have people, these people are confessing him as Lord, but they're still not entering the kingdom of heaven. And so we are still left wondering, how can this be? I mean, I thought we're saved by faith. What's the problem here? But thankfully, Jesus adds some clarification. So we can say, secondly, a clarification. The text moves from a declaration to a clarification. The rest of verse 21 He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Now notice the wording of verse 21. He says, not everyone who calls him Lord will enter. Now that means some people will. There are some people who call him Lord who will enter, which makes sense that that is required to enter. You must confess him as Lord, but not everyone who makes this confession gets inside. That's because this saying, Jesus is Lord, it's not a magic formula. These are not magical words you just say like open sesame and and it's your ticket into heaven. And as Jesus states here, there will be many people on judgment day who gave assent to his person, to his work. They have the right information, but their faith was still deficient. And so what's missing? Well, he clarifies He says, it's the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven that will enter. Now this phrase, doing the will of my father, makes clear Jesus is talking now about obedience. We're talking about keeping God's will. God's will undoubtedly refers to the moral will of God. The Jews hearing the phrase, keeping the will of God, they understand that no doubt to mean keeping the commandments of the law. To this, we can add all the commands of Jesus himself being the Lord. He he speaks God's word and will to us. He's the one passing judgment on who gets to enter the kingdom. And so we must obey him. And we must obey him continually. This verb for for doing the will of God, it's in the present tense. So this is talking about ongoing, active obedience. This is a lifelong commitment to, to live out God's will. So we have here in mind, a person who doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk. It's one thing to claim you're on the narrow way leading to life. It's another thing to actually walk on that way. And that way is characterized by the Lord Jesus himself. So to follow him is to obey him. Now, real quick, with this clarification, you might wonder, like, is Jesus teaching salvation by works? Not at all, but I think we should clarify too, lest any of you be confused. Now, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, Jesus similarly talked about who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he say at the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 20, this, this key verse we found. He says at the beginning, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And to enter this kingdom, you have to be more righteous than the super devout scribes and Pharisees. 
how much more righteous do you need to be? Like, how, what are we talking about here? Well, he, he clarifies that at the end of chapter 5, Matthew 5, 48, where he says, you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You need perfect righteousness. This is God's standard of acceptance into his holy presence. Well, how do we gain this perfect righteousness? By, by our own works, by our own effort, by no means. Now, that's not even possible. I mean, we're all sinners. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous. Not even one person is righteous. But this is the whole point. The good news of Christ's gospel is that through his atoning death, the righteousness you need to be accepted by God is available to you for free as a gift that you receive by faith. This is given to us by grace through faith. Just like Paul says later in Romans, for example, Romans 3, 28, we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the only way of salvation. It's not faith plus works. It really is faith alone. We are justified, made right, made righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Jesus knew this. Jesus taught this. You don't have to turn, but listen to John 6, his teaching in John 6, 27 through 29. It's a bread of life sermon where he says to the people, he says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on whom on him, the father God has set his seal and says, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He knows it's, it's, it's no, what, what works are we talking about? Just, just faith alone. Salvation comes not by doing, but by believing and trusting in Christ alone. But we still haven't answered then, if, if that's true, and that it is, back to Matthew 7. So why does Jesus say that it seems like it's not enough that these people are confessing him as Lord? Rather, only the doers of God's will enter the kingdom. I thought salvation is by believing, not doing. So what's the deal? Well, the kicker is that all those who are true believers are doers. In other words, obedience is part and parcel with saving faith. Wherever you find true saving faith and a genuine confession of Jesus as Lord, you will find obedience to the will of God. You'll find deeds of righteousness. You will find fruit. Isn't that how you identify a good tree? Is this any different than what Jesus said in the previous passage in Matthew 7 about how to identify a false prophet? You'll know them by their fruit. That's how one's nature is revealed. And that goes for all of us. John 15, 8. Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is not how you're made a disciple, but this is how you prove you are a disciple. You must display the righteousness you received by faith. And again, this is why all throughout the Bible, faith and obedience always go together. Wherever you find true saving faith, you're going to find obedience. And this is why obedience can be seen as the the legitimate, sure measure of true salvation. Obedience and faith are inseparable. That's why Hebrews 5.9 says, Having been made perfect, he, Jesus, 
became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. In the book of Romans, it's like it's the book teaching justification by faith alone, not by works. Like that's like the book. Yet you realize at the very beginning, the very end of Romans, Paul's intro, his conclusion, he's letting them know why he's writing this gospel of grace to them. And both times, several times, he says why he's writing. He says it's to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26. These two words are not at odds. The obedience of the faith. True faith, rather, is always accompanied by obedience. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith that is alone, meaning faith that produces no fruit, no, no works, that's a dead faith, and dead faith can't save. Now, all this teaching, especially what Jesus says in Matthew 7.21, it is, it is the nail in the coffin to what has become known as easy believism. This, this was a tragic misrepresentation that came from some Protestants. They championed sola fide, faith alone, but ignorantly and unbiblically take that to mean that obedience is optional for salvation. I mean, it, you don't really need to obey the, the Lord. Just, just say the words. Just confess with your mouth. That's it. Just, just pray this prayer, sign this card, come forward at this crusade and say the magic words. Just invite Jesus into your heart. If you do that, great. Now you're saved forever. No questions asked. You're in. And just by this, this very simple verbal uh, profession, they give people assurance for the rest of their lives. And since we're saved by faith, not works, it doesn't really matter what you do the rest of your life. You could be an axe murderer. If you made the confession at one point in your life, Jesus is Lord and Savior, you're in. But this is a huge deception. I mean, does not Jesus prove that in our text? And such people, they're either deceived by the evil one or, or self-deceived. Everyone wants to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, just, just think, all I have to do, I just have to believe in Jesus. I have to affirm he's Lord, he's Savior, he died, he rose. Okay, I can do all that. That's, that's kind of their get out of hell free card. And then that they still get to keep their life of sin. They still get to keep living as if they're Lord. It's like a win-win. Like, I'll, I'll pray that prayer. Like, sign me up. Give me, tell me whatever card I need to sign. I'll do that. But sadly, I think these are some of the same people who will show up outside the broad gate on the path of destruction in the end. It's not enough simply to call him Lord. You must actually submit to him as Lord and follow him. The mere hearers of the word receive greater condemnation. The doers are the ones who have found justification as they prove they have true faith. That being said, though, the nature of deception runs so deep, people will seek to justify themselves to the very last moment. They will, they're so utterly convinced in their ways that they, they, they won't entertain the thought they could possibly be wrong. They don't want to hear it. They'll maintain to the very end that they know the Lord. And this is why Jesus next reveals how, how many will seek to justify themselves in the end. And so number three, thirdly, the text comes to a justification a justification. This is verse 22. He begins and says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You see again, that phrase that day, he still has in mind that that future eschatological day of judgment. This is a definite remote future day. Many times throughout Matthew, Jesus references this future day of judgment. 
And this time he foresees what this group of people, what they will say to him on that day. The same group of professing believers, once again, they call him Lord, Lord. But now they're offering up some justification, explaining why they should be admitted. I mean, like, Jesus has to have it wrong. Like, check the list. Check the list again. Surely their name is on the list. I'm like, Don't you know all they've done for Jesus? And so what proof of salvation do they offer? They offer up a threefold justification. Let's look at it. Verse 22. First, they say, did we not prophesy in your name? And so they're first claiming the gift of prophecy. Now, the act of prophecy simply means declaring God's revelation. There's two sides of it. There's foretelling, which is basically like preaching. Whether new revelation, existing revelation, just it's a preaching gift. But prophecy also includes foretelling. That's the supernatural side of the gift where you're, you're telling the future. And many of the great prophets gave the sign of predictive prophecy so that when it came true, people would heed all of the rest of their words as from God. Now, regarding these people in Matthew, given how all of their other claims are miraculous, I think it's most likely that they're claiming the sign gift of prophecy. They're saying that they have foretold the future. They have prophesied. Surely that is proof they belong in heaven. In addition to prophecy, they also claim second. They say, in your name, we've cast out demons. And next they boast of exorcism or the ability to cast out demons. And this too is a miraculous gift. I mean, we we certainly know Jesus had authority over demons. He gave that authority to his apostles. And so these people are, are claiming that they have received that too. They have used the name of Jesus to cast out demons. I mean, how how could that not prove they're true Christians? And then finally, they say, overall, thirdly, that in your name, perform many miracles. So third boast, this this overarching claim to working many wonders. Acts 19.11 says that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. These miraculous deeds were real signs of the apostles that they were God's representatives. But again, these people, they're claiming to be similar wonder workers. That just has to be the ultimate proof they know God, right? And so how could they still be kept out of the kingdom after they've done all of this for the Lord? And overall, you notice each of these three claims, each one is intensified because with each claim, they invoke the name of Jesus. They've done all this in your name, three times, in your name, in your name. And actually comes first in the Greek for emphasis. They did all this in the name of Jesus. These people call Jesus Lord. They have an orthodox confession. They work wonders in his name. I still don't see what's missing here. How how are they excluded? Well, first, let's question whether or not they really did these things. Did they really prophesy, cast out demons, work wonders? Now, it's obviously possible all their claims were false. They were just making this up and there's no truth behind it. I actually think it's far more likely that their claims were true. Jesus gives not even a hint of doubt as to the veracity of their claims. He doesn't dispute their claims like that wasn't really a miracle. He takes it all at face value. But how could that be? If these people are not actually true believers, how could they possibly work these miracles? Well, you realize it is possible God gave them power to work wonders, even though they were not his children for various purposes. 
Did not God enable the wicked prophet Balaam to genuinely prophesy and speak his words? Did not Jesus give all 12 of his disciples authority over demons and the ability to heal every type of disease? And they all reported success. And guess what? That includes Judas. Now, I think most likely, though, that if these claims are true, I think most likely that that they would be working these wonders by the power of the devil. There's not only one source of power for these things. Scripture often warns against the deceptive power of false signs and wonders. If you don't believe me, just listen to Jesus. He said this will become more and more common near the end of the age. Matthew 24, 24, he says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And regarding that time, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, he says, the lawless one, the Antichrist, he will similarly deceive people, he says, with all power and signs and false wonders. All this goes to say that just because someone works a wonder, that is by no means proof their power came from God. Could have just as easily come from the evil one. You, you, you prove the difference. King Saul prophesied that did not mean he knew God. The magicians of Pharaoh repeated the first two plagues. That did not mean they came from God. God himself said way back in Deuteronomy 13 that even if a prophet arises, he performs a sign or wonder, and it comes true. That does not automatically mean he came from God. He gave a further test. How do you know he really speaks for God and came from God? You evaluate his words. Does he lead you to obey God or not? It's just like Jesus said for the false prophet. You'll know them by their fruit. And that is the real problem with this group who's standing before Jesus. When they're, they're seeking to justify themselves, they're seeking to prove their salvation. Like what comes to their mind? They jump straight to the miraculous signs, wonders. But you realize that this is not the measure of faith. This is not even obedience. It is true, God enabled in his will, his early apostles and prophets, to work real signs and wonders, to authenticate them as God's messengers. But you realize this list of things, these are never commanded as if this is the will of God for ordinary believers. Jesus said, who enters the kingdom? He said, those who do the will of God. But do you realize there's not a single command for New Testament believers to prophesy, to cast out demons, to work wonders. These things are not commanded. If God so wills to give someone that ability, that's his will. But they're never commanded for us. It's not obedience. You want the real measure of obedience, try righteous living. Try that the weightier provisions of the law, love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. How about the Beatitudes? Being poor in spirit, being merciful, being a peacemaker. How about everything we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount? Loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, being devoted to to genuine prayer, selfless giving, treating others the way you would want to be treated. You'll know them by their fruits. This is the real fruit of obedience. But these false believers had none of that. Their self-justification rang hollow. It was not convincing. They offered no evidence of real saving faith. The miraculous by itself proves nothing. The Lord is looking for those who hear his words and then do them. But while these people certainly confessed Jesus with their lips, they were harboring rebellion and self-will in their hearts. They, they never did the will of God. They continued to live as if they were Lord. And the real pattern of their life was 
disobedience. And that's why in the end, they receive not real justification, they only receive condemnation. And so finishing this passage, Jesus moves from what they will say to him on the last day to what he will say to them on the last day. And that brings us to number four, a condemnation. Number four, we find in verse 23, a condemnation. Jesus says right after, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We'll take this verse working backwards. Look at the end of verse 23. I mean, despite all their claims, how they sought to justify themselves, how does Jesus evaluate them? His turn. You know them by their fruits. And for them, the the only fruit he saw was lawlessness. They, They practiced lawlessness. And the the verb for practice, it's literally just the term for work or labor. We're saved by faith. We're judged by works. And the labor of their lives showed no evidence of true faith. They gave no evidence of actually submitting to Jesus as Lord, but instead that the habitual, continual, unrepentant pattern of their life was, in a word, lawlessness. What is that? First John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. Jesus is the supreme lawgiver. But these people did not do what he says. It's akin to just obeying the Lord. They paid lip service to his lordship, but then lived completely contrary to his word, his will. Their miraculous claims and religious feelings no doubt convinced them that they were close to God. But you want to really know who's close to God? God is holy. He's supremely holy. And those close to him are likewise holy. That's why Hebrews 12, 14 commands us. It says, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But these people, they were not concerned with holiness. It's evident that these false believers missed the very first lesson of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Beatitudes, that the entry gate into the Sermon on the Mount, which just depicts what the way of the Lord actually looks like. What does the narrow way of salvation look like? How do you get on this way? These people were not poor in spirit. They're not broken over their condition. They did not mourn. They did not grieve over their sins. They were not meek. They did not humble themselves before the Lord. And they did not hunger and thirst for true righteousness. They were content with self-righteousness. And so what verdict did they receive? Again, working backward in verse 23, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. Evoking Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. Now they're being banished from the city of God. Depart from me. It just means to go away. You're being sent out. They'll they'll have no place in the eternal kingdom before God and his son. Is this a big deal? This is the biggest deal. This is the end of the line. And you realize, what is the glory of the eternal kingdom? It is simply the fact that you get to dwell restored with God and his son and his spirit forever. That's the glory. You're with the savior who will wipe away every tear. The first things have passed away. Sin, suffering, death, they're no more. But those who practice lawlessness, that they're kept outside that eternal kingdom. The gates will be shut. They'll be left in the outer darkness, the place where Jesus says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like Jesus said elsewhere of his condemnation of the wicked on the, the day of judgment. Listen to Matthew 25, verse 41. He says, then he will also say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, that's Jesus talking. Maybe you think of salvation like a sliding scale, like, like God grades on a curve. And so you might think of these people like they, they got, you know, they didn't make it in, but they're real close. They got real close to salvation. But it doesn't work like that. Salvation is, is black and white. Either you avail yourself entirely of Christ's finished work by faith, or you don't. And those who don't, they could have played the Christian part for 60 years in their life and said all the right things, but they were never close. There's no close. You're the in or out. This really is brought out in what Jesus says next, working backward. He says before that, I never knew you. I never knew you. And I think it's one of the most stunning things he says in the whole passage, precisely because of the word never. I never knew you. It's emphatic. He doesn't say like, I used to know you, or I knew you just a little. He says, I I never knew you. Not, Not once, not a little. Not for a moment did Jesus ever acknowledge them as his disciples. Because not for a moment did they ever actually follow him as Lord. He was never actually their Lord. Jesus says, I never knew you. That The verb for know in the Hebrew mind is a significant term. It's a relational term used from the beginning of the Bible to describe the most intimate relationships. Even used to describe marital intimacy. On a deep spiritual level, God knows his people. Jesus, the good shepherd, he knows his sheep. And the sheep know him. There's an intimate, living, abiding relationship between the Savior and the saved. It's just like 2 Timothy 2, 19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. He knows how to identify a true believer. How does he do that, by the way? You read the second half of 2 Timothy 2, 19. It says, Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. This teaching is actually not that complicated. It's, it's shocking, but it, it should be straightforward. Talk is cheap. I can pay someone to say the words, Jesus is Lord. But true salvation comes to those who yield their lives to that confession. And, and they're going to prove it by obedience to his will, living under his lordship. And sadly, that did not characterize these people standing before him in judgment. Now, speaking of judgment, throughout this whole passage, you've seen how Jesus He's setting himself up as the great last judge. As if he hasn't assumed enough titles and roles of God. Here's another one. Because all throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is the only judge of the living and the dead. But now that's Jesus because he is God incarnate. But all throughout Matthew, from the parables of Matthew 13 to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, there are many scenes of future judgment in Matthew's gospel. Every time, Jesus himself is the one saying, depart from me. The divine prerogative of judgment has been handed to him by the Father. And in the end, it will be Jesus himself who will declare judgment on all the lost. And that word declare, it's a special word in the Greek, homo logeo. It's often, almost always translated confess, related term used in verse 21. And actually reveals a, a play on words here Jesus is using. That this passage, start to finish, is marked by two confessions. It begins with a confession in verse 21, where this group of people, they confess Jesus is Lord. Even Lord, Lord. But their faith was false. Their lives were fruitless. 
And so Jesus, in the end, he makes his own confession. He has his own confession to make, and that is he never knew them. You don't want to hear that confession. Every aspect of these three short verses is sobering. But there's one last tiny detail we we skipped over that I think truly arrests and demands our attention. You can't ignore Christ's teaching, especially since he says this applies not to the few, but how does verse 22 begin? To the many. This is all for and about the many. This warning of false assurance does not apply to the few. This self-deception will not characterize just you know, a tiny minority of people in the last day. And he says it's the many. It's the same many who walk the broad path of destruction from the verses before that are turned away from the kingdom. That that same group of many how many of them will be saying, I thought we knew you. And he will say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. The gate to the kingdom is narrow indeed. And if anything stresses the seriousness of this warning, it would be that how, how so many so-called believers are just self-deceived. That fact, all of these facts should lead us to the intended outcome of this warning and this whole passage. And that would be lastly, number five, self Examination. It starts with a declaration, a clarification, a justification, condemnation. This warning should lead you to self-examination. We wonder, like, what is the purpose of this text? Why did Jesus say this? Why is he ending his great Sermon on the Mount with, with these words? Let's say again, his goal is not to rob true believers of genuine assurance. But it is to confront and awaken the false, self-deceived, professing believer in love. He knew the heart of men. He sees all these people gathered around him who are physically following him, but he knows very few are actually following him. What Jesus teaches here, though, should lead all who name him as Lord to examine self. You should never be afraid or unwilling to examine self. It's actually something Christians are, are commanded to do. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. A refusal to examine self is like a sure sign of self-deception. But how do you do that? How do you examine self, especially in such a way to avoid false assurance and gain true assurance? That's a huge question and I'm not sure yet this might bear some fleshing out next week. But for today, it suffices just to stick to our text. The teaching of Jesus hits the nail on the head because he straight up tells us the number one means of true assurance. It is doing the will of God. It is not living in lawlessness. Let's put it this way. John chapter three, Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what you must do. You have to be born anew again to enter this kingdom. What does that mean? It means you need a new nature, a new heart to enter. All right, well, how do you do that? You don't. I mean, can you create for yourself a new spirit, a new heart, a new nature? No, you don't have that power. That's a divine work. You weren't in charge of your first birth. You're not in charge of your second birth. That's why that phrase born again, actually in the Greek literally means born from above. God must give you a new heart. And as Jesus said, the spirit moves where he wills. 
That is the divine side to salvation for which we trust the Lord. We are saved by God's work, not our own work. This is a work that was planned and ordained by the Father. It was accomplished by the Son in his death and resurrection. It's applied to us by the Spirit. But God has not left us without a necessary human response by which we access and receive the grace gift of salvation. And that essential response is faith. And again, faith is the anti-work. Faith is, is the recognition or you finally realize I am unworthy, unholy, undeserving of this kingdom. I don't belong in this kingdom. But I come to see Jesus as, as Lord. He is worthy. He's holy. He's deserving. And by his finished work alone, I can be forgiven. I can be redeemed. And so by this faith, you go to him as Lord and Savior. And you just cry out for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That is the cry of faith. And God promises to hear that cry to save, to justify. That's why later in that same chapter, John chapter 3, you get John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've never known Christ, you've never truly confessed him as Lord, uh, today must be the day. You find this new birth, this forgiveness of sins, this redemption, the weight of your sins erased forever, like we sang this morning. But there's only one way. It's through the door of Christ to enter by this true faith. And for everyone else here who has professed Christ as Lord, amen. As we said, a right Orthodox confession of him is required for salvation. But now you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you wonder whether or not you have truly been born again? How do you know you're not self-deceived? Well, it's like Jesus said, even later in John chapter 3, he says, now you practice the truth. You walk in the light. You give evidence of a changed life. This thing called new birth, do you think that's a tiny change? It's not a small change. It's not a subtle change in who you are. Rather, you're transformed. And so a new life should emerge out of that transformation. It may take some time, but look, good seed sown in good soil is going to grow and over time bear fruit. Are we talking sinless perfection? Of course not, but there should be real, increasing, ongoing fruit. The fruit of holiness, obedience, repentance, as we stumble in many ways. But there should not be ongoing, unrepentant sin, rebellion, and lawlessness. So examine your life and examine your faith. Is there any evidence of this new birth? Do you have new desires for God? A new love for God? A new drive toward holiness? Do you hate your sin? Do you repent when you stumble? Even if it's every day. Do you seek to live in obedience to the word of God? If you look on the tree, however, and there's nothing there. There's no evidence of this on the, tr on the tree. Heed Christ's warning. Beware. If you're living a, a life, a double life of secret sin, but you're playing the Christian game, be very beware or be warned. Just like Jesus said in Luke 6.46, a parallel passage, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? That says it all. Like, why do you call him Lord, but you don't actually do what he says? He's not your Lord. If that happens to be you this morning, 
there's still good news that you still have time to repent and to believe on him for real, to, to truly yield to him as Lord and Savior. Some might know in their heart of hearts that, that they don't really know this Lord, but they don't want to say so because they're ashamed. They've been living as a Christian for 20 years. That's like admitting they've been a phony for 20 years. They're too ashamed. What will people think? But better to suffer a little shame now than eternal shame later. And all that matters is what God thinks in the end. And at the end of the day, Jesus will say to all people one of two things. He will either say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The hinge of that final verdict, humanly speaking, is what you do with Jesus as Lord. He is Lord. As Philippians 2 says of him, every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they want to or not. But I pray you bow that knee now unto salvation before it's too late. Bow to him as Lord and Savior in your heart, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we, we pray to you and express, I think, the heart cry of us here this morning that, that Jesus is our Lord, and we do bow to him, recognizing him for who he is. He is the sinless man, the, the perfect man, lived a perfect life, yet also the God-man, Yahweh incarnate, our saving God, come down, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We confess, Lord, our, our own sin. We must be poor in spirit, realizing in our created condition, our fallen condition, rather, there's nothing we could do to, to enter this eternal kingdom, be reconciled to God. We face an eternal death. We would all would be kept outside these gates, deservedly so. But in your great love, because you love this world, you sent Christ to die on that cross and to rise from the dead, to pay all the debt, of all of our sins, that we might be justified. He, he suffered in our place. Now, by your grace gift, we can be saved by his work as we just go to him, as we plead for mercy. You are a merciful God, and you delight to extend your gift of salvation, humanly speaking, to those who, who cry out for it in genuine faith. That faith is a living faith. It's a faith that really doesn't just say Jesus is Lord, but, but means it. And it means it by bowing the knee and by really forsaking life and following him. I pray for anyone here who has confessed Jesus but has not actually done that, that you wake them up, that you humble them, that in mercy you, you show them the mirror, that they might come to true saving faith. And that's not a cause for shame. That's a cause for rejoicing because today can always be the day for genuine salvation if any are willing to, to humble themselves and come and kiss the ring, and bow down before the Son. He's a good Savior. He's a good Master. We would rather follow no one else, certainly not ourselves. That only brings us real suffering and shame. We thank you. The Lord has come. We confess him as our Lord and our Savior, and bow the knee now, all to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.